But I want to introduce my uncle to you. Uh, I've been putting this out on Facebook, and so some of y'all may not even know, you know, like, there's a couple of things you need to know about me. Number one, I'm not the only preacher in our family. And number two, I'm not the best preacher in our family. So uh, you get to hear the best preacher in our family today. And um, my uncle has preached at uh, the Southwest Church of Christ in Jonesboro, Arkansas. He preached there for 44 years. And so I've got, uh, this morning I calculated, I get 26 years I'll catch him. So I got 26 more years of service here at Murray Hills to catch the 44. Uh, if you'll let me stay. But um, I had the opportunity to work with him uh, 96 to 2000, 2001, somewhere in there. I uh, had the opportunity to, to, we moved to Jonesboro, Arkansas. Jenny and I, right after we got married, right out of college, I did my grad school while I was there, drove back and forth to Memphis. I had the opportunity to work under uh, my uncle, and I got the opportunity to sit under his teaching every Sunday. And uh, it's something that has shaped the way that I speak, and it's shaped uh, the way that I approach the scriptures. And uh, he taught me a lot about grace, and uh, I had a lot to learn about grace in 96. Uh, so he taught me a lot about uh, grace and God's love, and uh, I'm just, I'm really thankful that he's here, finally. I finally convinced him to come to Murray Hills and preach for me. And um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to the message that he has to share with you today. So welcome my Uncle Jimmy to the stage. Well, I told people in the first service, it's the first time I've ever been introduced as Uncle Jimmy. Um, but I'm so glad to be here. Russ and I have talked about this possibility for, oh, I don't know how many years. And uh, we, we've visited here quite often, but I don't think we've been here since before COVID. How many things we defined in terms of when COVID was. But uh, it's so good to be back. And uh, he called me a few weeks ago. I got a little more flexibility now than I used to. And asked me if I'd come, and I thought, yeah, I think that's going to work this time, and so it's good to be here. Uh, Russ did such a great job at Southwest when he was there. Um, sounds like nepotism, doesn't it, that, that we brought him there to, to work, but uh, really I had nothing to do with it. They came as summer interns, and, uh, and then we, we lost our youth minister, and everybody thought, we need somebody our kids know, they love, they respect, and so let's ask Russ to come back, and let's let, ask him to be our our youth minister and he and Jenny came back and uh, and just blessed our kids and blessed our church and I still hear comments to this day about the influence they've had in their lives and he not only served as our youth minister he became our first executive minister in his 20s and did a great job with that because of his leadership ability and then just to uh, to see his work and to see this church grow and have an impact in this community over these years is a pleasure um, and it's just so good to be back in Middle Tennessee. Driving over here this morning, I thought, is there a more beautiful place in all the world than Middle Tennessee, especially here in the spring of the year? And then to be able to be with family, we're going to have about 30 folks at lunch here at the building today, thanks to uh, some of our family that are going to be providing that meal. And uh, it's, this is like homecoming in so many ways, homecoming to Tennessee, Middle Tennessee, family. And then just to be with the believers at this place and know of your love for the Lord and the impact you're seeking to have in this community. Uh, just, just thank you for letting me be a part of your day. So we're moving toward Easter, and today is Palm Sunday. And so we're going to talk about that for just a moment. I want to uh, kind of set a little context for uh, Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem on the Sunday before his crucifixion. 
Uh, it really starts, of course it starts before this, but the events that precipitated what happens here began with the, the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. And think about what an astounding thing that was, that Jesus could speak the word and the dead could be raised and walk out of that tomb for all of these witnesses to see. Now, Jesus had demonstrated his power in multiple ways, but this really stirred the waters and, and, and the message began to spread and people were curious about this Jesus and the miracles he performed and this, this man who is a living exhibit of the fact that he has power even over death. Some believed when they heard and saw Lazarus raised from the dead, and others were just alarmed because they thought the crowds around Jesus are just getting larger and larger, and the people are going to rise up and think he's the Messiah, and they're going to try to overthrow the Romans, and when they do, the Romans are going to squelch our city and destroy our traditions, and, and so they were fearful about all of that, and so they finally said, you know, it's better for one man to die than for a whole nation to die, and the religious leaders of the day are the ones who are plotting to kill Jesus in order to save their own necks. Jesus began to come into this area, but he withdrew to the wilderness because of the plots that were being made against his life. People began arriving for the Passover early while Jesus is absent, coming early for purification rites, getting ready for Passover, which is the largest Jewish event of the year. They began to arrive early, and leaders publicly began to order. If they saw any sightings of Jesus anywhere, they were to let them know because they had plans already to arrest him. Six days before Passover, Jesus arrived in Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem, at the home of his friends. And there, Mary anointed him with this precious ointment, which Jesus interpreted as a blessing to him for his burial because he knew what was lying ahead. People began to hear and flock to see Jesus when they heard he was in Bethany. And the leaders even began to, to plot to kill Lazarus because they thought his exhibit of the power of Jesus is, is something that needs to be stopped. The next day after he was in Bethany, the people heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem and the crowds gathered to meet him. And hearing about Jesus and most recently about Lazarus' resurrection, they were fired up at the possibility that this was the messianic king that they had been longing for for generations and generations. There had been false messiahs who had come, but perhaps this was the one. The power he's manifested over sin and over nature and over death. How could this man not potentially be the messiah who's come to deliver us all? And so the crowds gathered as Jesus was entering the city of Jerusalem, and they came with palm leaves, which they were waving and placing in the road, laying out, as it were, the red carpet for the king to enter into the city. Some of them laid down their cloaks along the way as a carpet upon which Jesus could tread as he, as he rode upon that donkey. The palm leaves were reminiscent of the days of Judas Maccabeus over 160 years earlier, who had led this revolt against the Syrians and before that against the Egyptians. They had desecrated the temple. They had put an idolatrous God there, and they'd even offered a pig upon the altar as a sacrifice. And the Jewish people rose up under the leadership of Judas Maccabeus, and through their guerrilla warfare, they won a great victory. And when he enters the city to celebrate the victory as the conqueror, the people come out with their palm leaves to lay them in the way and to celebrate the victory that God has given. You can't help but think about that as you read this text. That event is connected with the Jewish Hanukkah today. 
But to think about that when you read this text, because the people again believe Jesus may be the conqueror that we've been looking for, and so they are celebrating him as king. In fact, they are crying out, hail to the king. Jesus was fulfilling the words of Zechariah 9 and verse 9. Listen to this. Look, your king is coming. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt, and your king will bring peace to all the nations. There is found in this verse kind of the contradiction that his disciples felt throughout his ministry. On the one hand, he was saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Sort of stirring the pot, the messianic expectation that the kingdom maybe is finally arriving. And yet on the other hand, talking about death and talking about dying. And when he did that with his disciples on one occasion, Peter actually rebuked Jesus because in his mind, messiahs don't come to die. Messiahs come to win great victories and mount thrones and kick out the enemy. And that was their expectation, what Jesus was coming to do. So here he talks about being a king, and yet at the same time, he keeps talking about death and dying. And his disciples are confused. And as they go to Jerusalem, knowing that people are there wanting to plot to kill him, they're afraid and they're confused. But they follow with Jesus to the city of Jerusalem, undoubtedly wondering what's going to happen to him there. And that contradiction between the expectation of the king and the dying are what's found in this passage. The text says the king's coming, he's righteous and victorious, but he's humble. One of the gospels says he's gentle or he's lowly. And instead of riding into the city on a white steed, he comes riding on a donkey. And the people come out to celebrate their humble king. Those words were also confusing to them as they began to hear some of Jesus' comments around his entrance into the city. Some Greeks had come to Philip and said, we would see Jesus, we want to see Jesus. And so Philip went to Jesus to see if that was possible. And when he made that request of Jesus, Jesus said these words in John chapter 12. So notice these on the screen. Here's what Jesus said about this moment. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds talking about death the messiah is going to be glorified but it has to do with death and then in the next verse 27 now my soul is troubled and what shall i say father save me from this hour no it was for this very reason that i have come to this hour father glorify your name jesus saw the son of man being glorified and the glorification of the father's name as happening on a cross. Not exactly the place we would think one would look to see the glory of God. We think of fanfare and bright lights and exhilaration and moments of victory. We think of strength and power when we think of the glory of God. And yet at this particular moment in time, this view of Jesus hanging on a cross becomes the place where the glory of God is seen. I doubt the disciples saw it that day. They didn't understand what was happening before their eyes. I can see God being glorified through the resurrection or the ascension or the exaltation, but through a bloody cross between two thieves where he is spit on and slapped and mocked? Is that where one would think to look to see the glory of God? 
We know Paul's talk about suffering as the path to glory. Jesus is talking about more than that. He's not talking about the cross as a pathway to glory down the road. He's saying the glory of God is seen in the face of Jesus on that cross in that moment. There's something about the revelation of God in that place that gives us a view of God that we can see nowhere else. So the question is, how can the horror and seeming defeat of the cross, how can that bring glory to God? How can that be a picture of the glory of God? What does the cross reveal? What does it accomplish that glorifies the name of Jesus and the name of the Father? So we're going to talk about three things. And I'm sure there are others, but we're going to look at three. The first one is, in the cross, the justice of God is revealed. Now I want you to stay with me on this. Many are challenged and perplexed by the seeming injustices that happen in the world all around us. You can pick up a paper, you can turn on the news, you can think about what's happening in your community or a nation or across the world, and you could say over and over and over again, that's not right. That's not right. Why are these things happening in our world? The injustice is all around us, but it's not a modern problem. Abraham struggled with it when God said he was going to destroy the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham began to ask requests of God, Lord, they may be righteous people in that city. Are the righteous going to suffer alongside of the wicked? If there are 50 righteous people, will you spare the city? God said yes. If there are 45, 40, 30, 20, 10, 5, God says yes. Apparently there weren't five righteous people within that city. But Abraham would cry out, will not the king of all of the earth do right? Abraham couldn't fathom how God could bring suffering to the righteous alongside the wicked. And we struggle with the same thing today, don't we? We wonder why the innocent people suffer. But the fact of the matter is that we are confronted with the same realities. And the Bible speaks to that in two ways. It says, first of all, look forward to the final judgment. God's paying attention. Things are not going to stay as they are. Things are going to be set right. And we look forward in anticipation to the second coming of the Lord because then God's kingdom will come in its fullness and evil will be conquered and overthrown and there will be a final judgment. But scripture also deals with it by pointing us to the cross. The cross becomes an expression of God's judgment upon sin. The fact that God notices what's going on in the world, he's aware of the sin and degradation that exists, he knows of the injustices that are there, and the cross becomes a profound expression of God's acknowledgement and how God chooses to deal with it in his holiness and in his love. And the picture of it is found in Romans chapter 3 and verse 25. So just notice this passage with me. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. In other words, he took our place. We deserved death because of sin. The wages of sin is death. And that's what we deserve because we're all sinners and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus came to be a sacrifice of atonement. He sacrificed himself. He became the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. He took our place in that place of judgment. He pronounced judgment upon injustice by becoming the sacrifice for it himself. Through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate. This is where the glory of God is seen. He's demonstrating his glory in his righteousness. To demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he'd left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. 
So people would say, what's that all about? Look at the sin that's filling the earth, and nothing's been done to correct it. He did it. He gave his son to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. He came to pronounce judgment upon sin and to take the sin's degradation and rightful judgment upon himself because of his love and compassion for his people. But he took sin seriously. The cross is a statement that God takes sin seriously and he does not overlook sin. The only way God could be a just God and forgive us of our sins is for Jesus to come and take our sins upon himself. On that cross, there is a huge statement about the glory of the righteousness of God to set things straight. But there's a second thing we can see about the glory of the cross, and that's the love of God. God's love seems incompatible with the injustices of the world, right? Personal tragedies, floods and earthquakes and tornadoes, accidents and poverty and hungry, hunger, tyranny and torture, disease and death. Imagine the misery of the centuries that's stacked up even as we look around and see some of the miseries of our own day. The cross of Christ is a powerful expression of God's love that shines unmistakably. When you look at all the world around you and said, how could a loving God allow all of this to happen? I don't really have an answer for you except to point to the cross. Because there is an undeniable, unmistakable declaration of the glory of God and the nature of his love for every single one of us. And it is such a strong statement that it overwhelms all of our questions and has the power to erase our doubts. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says, God demonstrates his own love. There's that word demonstrates again. It happened at the cross. He demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So I want us to think about that for just a moment, and I want to invite you to enter in fully into what I'm about to say. We have heard of the love of God so much and so often and so long, some of us throughout our entire lives, that it's so easy to think, you know, I already know that, I've heard that, I believe that, and yet at the same time, sometimes we know it's all true in our head, but we don't experience it in our hearts, right? I talk with people all the time that follow Jesus, but they're just not really sure that God's grace is enough for them, that God could really love them. Maybe it's because of things that have happened to them in the past. Maybe it's the abuse they've suffered. Maybe it's the skeletons in their closet. Maybe it's the huge mistakes they've made in their past. Maybe it's the consciousness of guilt that they just can't seem to get rid of. Does God really love me? Would he really give his son for me? All that sounds good in theory, but in reality? Here are three declarations, and I want to invite you to, to let your mind try to embrace the reality of what this means. First of all, God gave his son for us. He could have sent a man. He could have sent a prophet. He could have sent an angel. We would have been grateful. We would have even been privileged to have heard that God would send an angel to intervene on our behalf. But all of those are creations of God. And selfless love is expressed in the giving of oneself. And so God, to declare his love, couldn't just send a substitute, a third party. 
He had to send himself, and he did that in the person of his son. God is one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When God so loved the world that he gave his son, it was God loving the world because in giving his son, he was giving himself. Because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one, uniquely one. And so God gave his son. He gave the greatest gift anyone could possibly imagine. Secondly, God gave his son to die. He didn't just give him to come in the incarnation and manifest himself in a body and live and love and serve and set an example for us. He did all those things. That was just the beginning that was moving towards something else. He gave his son to die for us. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself. He took upon himself the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of man. And being found in fashion as a man, it went further. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. How could the Father's love have been demonstrated if he had sent somebody else? He had to demonstrate his own self-giving love. God gave his son to die for us. And then thirdly, God gave his son to die for us. Now, a young man who falls in love with a young woman may recklessly spend more money on gifts for her than probably he could afford. But in the process of that sacrificial giving, he's doing it because he believes she deserves it and more. But when Jesus went to the cross to die for us, it wasn't because we deserved it. In fact, it was because we didn't deserve it. There are four words in the book of Romans that describe our condition without Jesus. The first word is sinners, which means we've missed the mark. God created us in his image to be his likeness and his representatives to live out his purpose in the world. And we've all fallen short. We've missed the mark. We're sinners and sin separates from God. The second word is ungodly. It's the failure to give God glory. It's to fail to live out of respect for God and just kind of respect our own opinions and our own values more than respect what God has said. It's found in the word enemies. Enemies of God because instead of working with God, we violate the values of God and we end up working against God by how we've lived our life. We spurn his love, we reject his will, and we've all been there. And then there's the word powerless, helpless. Being under the yoke of sin, there's absolutely nothing we can do to free ourselves. Now those are four pretty ugly adjectives describing the condition of a human being without Jesus. Very rarely will someone die for a righteous man, Paul says, even if their righteousness may appear cold and austere and forbidding. But for a good man whose goodness is warm and friendly and attractive, someone might possibly die. But God demonstrates his love for us, his unique love, and that while we were sinful, ungodly, rebellious, helpless people, God could look upon us with love and offer himself to die for us. So I wonder, do you believe this love? Brennan Manning writes about how his best friend Ray was someone he grew up with. They, uh, they were best friends. They actually bought a car together when they were in high school. They double dated together. They went to school together. 
They signed up for the military together. They went through boot camp together. They even ended up in the same group in the battlefield. And then he tells about how that they were found themselves in a foxhole in the Korean War. And uh, they were sitting there and Brennan began to talk and reminisce about all the things they'd done and what their life together as friends had been like. And while he was talking and while Ray was listening, all of a sudden a grenade landed in the foxhole. He said Ray looked up and smiled and dropped his chocolate candy bar and fell across the grenade and gave his life to save Brennan's life. Some years after that, Brennan decided he wanted to become a priest. And so he was told to choose his name, a name that would represent sainthood in their faith. And that's when he chose the name Brennan because Ray's last name was Brennan. And he thought that was a very saint-like act that Ray had given his life for him. So sometime after that, he goes to see, years later, he goes to visit with Ray's mother. And they're reminiscing and talking about things. And Brennan begins to think, and he asks her the question, Do you think Ray really loved me? And when he said that, Ray's mother got up off the couch. She walked over to the place where he was. She shook her finger in his face and she asked him, what more would he have to do to show you he loves you? And Brendan Manning said at that point in his life, he had an epiphany. He could picture himself at the foot of the cross, seeing Jesus on the cross. And he turns to Jesus' mother, Mary, and he says, do you think Jesus loves me? And Mary turns and shakes her finger in his face and said, what more could he do to show his love for you? And that's my question for you this morning. What more could God do to show you he loves you? Romans chapter 8 says that God gave his son for us. And if he gave his son for us, will he not also freely give us all things? If God would give to us the greatest gift, why would he withhold the lesser ones? Can we trust the goodness of God? The cross of Christ stands at the place where the glory of God is seen in the face of Jesus and his love shines to bring him glory and honor, a love like which otherwise we could never know. The glory of God is seen in his justice. God is for doing what's right. He wants to conquer evil. The glory of God is seen in the face of Jesus through his love for us on the cross, God giving himself for us. But the glory of God is also seen in the conquest of the cross. So if the love of God reminds us of the humble, lowly Jesus who would lay down his life for us, the glory of King Jesus reminds us of the conquest that he came to have over the sins of the world. So the Bible presents the world as this huge battleground between the forces of good and the forces of evil. There's a cosmic battle going on behind the scenes where you and I can't see. There are forces of spiritual powers that are working against us, seeking to influence your life and my life, finding strongholds in the world, and they're all around us. Strongholds where Satan has power and sway and influence, and that comes to influence your life and mine. He walks around as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But Jesus came to conquer those spiritual forces of evil. How could he do that through a cross? Nowhere does God look weaker than on a cross, right? The Jews, the Romans, Satan himself appear to be in control that day. 
Jesus is crucified in weakness. He's the Messiah riding on a donkey. He hardly appears as the victorious king bringing in his kingdom. Can victory come from defeat? Can a throne emerge from a cross? Can the crucified become a conqueror? And it's not just can the cross lead to a throne. It was on the cross that Jesus was enthroned in some ways, demonstrating his power and his victory over sin and death. And how did it happen? Look at Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. He says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins. How did he do it? There are three phrases in this text I want you to notice. The first one is, he canceled the charge against us. So there's this written code of our indebtedness that uh, stands over us. It's, it's like a handwritten document, a certificate of indebtedness, a signed confession of indebtedness, which stood perpetually as a witness against us. So it's, it's, it's like a legal document, but it's because of our sins. So when Jesus was hung on the cross, the accusations against him were Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. For us, it would be like a list of all the sins that we've committed. And they are written, and we cannot remove them we cannot take them away we are helpless we are powerful they stand as a continual constant as far as we're concerned irrevocable statement of our indebtedness because of our sinfulness that's the condition in which we find ourselves but when jesus went to the cross this text says that jesus in this moment in time canceled the bond of indebtedness against us and he took it out of the way nailing it to the cross and that brought forgiveness to your life and mine and how does that work I, I, I love the passage in Colossians 1 and a few years ago something began to stand out to me in this text especially in the NIV it says now he's reconciled you to Christ's body through his death to present you holy in his sight we could never do that on our own without blemish <laughs> we could certainly never remove the blemishes from our life on our own and free from accusation. You see, that's who Satan is. He's the accuser. So he usurps God, tries to turn us against him, get us to sin, and then he comes back to God as the accuser to say, look what those people have done. He knows the holiness of God, can't overlook their sin. And so he's continually our accuser. He keeps looking at that bond of indebtedness. Look, look, see, see, see what these people have done. And Jesus goes to the cross where Satan thinks he's destroying Jesus and he takes our sins upon himself and he cancels that debt that legal indebtedness that is against us and he takes it out of the way and he nails it to the cross and now there is no ground for accusation against us as God's people is that good news and not only is that the case but it says he disarmed the powers and authorities he stripped them of their weapons and disarmed them Satan's now powerless he can't bring a just case against us he stripped them of their dignity and might, and he degraded Satan in his work in the world. Satan is at that point ultimately defeated, but he's enraged and he's angry, and he's going to wreck all the havoc he can in the meantime, but we know that the victory is sealed. Jesus, in his death on the cross, destroyed the powers. They cannot bring any just accusation against God's people anymore. And so through the resurrection, all of this was proven, and life was given, and the text says he made a public spectacle of them. 
Satan became the victim of shame and justified ridicule. Thinking he had defeated Christ and the purpose of God, thinking he had secured his place as our accuser, the tables are suddenly turned and the very death he thought would bring victory brought defeat. The death he thought would bring honor brought him shame. His weakness and nakedness were exposed. Lightning fell from heaven. And Satan found himself powerlessly before the king who conquered through the cross, being glorified in his death and bringing glory to the Father. But the question for us becomes, how do we participate in that victory, right? How do we live into the justice of God, the, the justification of God that Jesus provided in his judgment against sin? How do we live into the love of God that he's provided for us and the cross is exhibit A? How do we live into the conquest of God so that we can know victory over sin, not just in terms of forgiveness, but in terms of living and life? How can God give us victory over sin? I want to suggest four things before we close. First of all, just as Jesus took sin seriously, we must take sin seriously. And I'll have to be honest with you. There's a view of the love of God today that is embraced by many people who call themselves Christians, who think that the love of God is just a reason to excuse ourselves from the lifestyle to which God has called us. God is still a just God. Sin is still sin. It still caused Jesus to be nailed to the cross. And there's a sense in which, as we contend on willfully living in sin, that we ourselves are nailing him there. So we begin by taking sin seriously, declaring the glory of his holiness and his justice, and choosing to follow him, not just to believe in him, but to actually follow him where he leads, making him the Lord of our life. And that starts with repentance. That's one of the first steps in owning Jesus as our Lord and Savior. The second is, trust the goodness and love of God. He loves you. He died for you while you were sinful, ungodly, rebellious, and helpless. The love of God is not an excuse for our sin. The love of God reminds us that God's intent for us is only good, and we trust him enough to believe that wherever he calls us, it's because of the goodness of his love that he leads us there. And we follow him. Third, resist the devil by yielding to the Spirit. Yes, Satan's defeated, but he's angrily wrecking havoc with God's world, and he's pursuing you and he's pursuing me. But don't be afraid of him. Though he seeks to influence and overwhelm your life, he can be overthrown by the cross. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so if you live into the Holy Spirit of God and walk in the Spirit, the Spirit has the power to give you victory over sin in your own life as you live each day. It doesn't mean we'll do it perfectly but we can do it faithfully. And when we do, the blood of Christ keeps on cleansing us. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You can claim the victory of the cross. And then four, we can participate in God's conquest if we proclaim Jesus to the world. The preaching of the cross is still the power of God unto salvation. The world needs it more than it needs our friendship or it needs our service. And it needs both of those, but it needs the message of the cross preeminently. The world needs to hear that sin, that the sin-forgiving, bondage-breaking, love-securing, life-giving, soul-enriching, purpose-giving power of the cross of Jesus, the world needs that more than it needs anything. And that is the mission and purpose of the church. And there, God's glory shines in its brilliance through a cross 
and a crown of thorns through a bloody person who is the Son of God who came to take away the sins of the world. There, the glory of God is made manifest. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, if we pause long enough to allow these thoughts to sink deeply into our minds and hearts, we stand amazed at your majesty, at your greatness, the creator of the universe who formed us and made us, who knows us better than we know ourselves, who loves us and intends only good for us, who's willing to sacrifice himself in order that he might find a just forgiveness for our sins, to welcome us into union with himself where we can know the glory and the honor that comes from being a part of the mission of God. Father, we give you thanks. We know that's not enough. Help us to offer up our lives as a continual thank offering to you for what you've done for us. Father, bless this church. Help it to be a bright light in this community. Help it to lift up the message of the gospel. Help it to show the compassion of Jesus. And help it to, Father, to be a power through Jesus that draws people to you. And help each one of us to live our lives to your glory and honor by bearing the image of the cross in how we live. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.